The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Donna Pierce. Donna Pierce is nationally and internationally known as a food historian. She is a national award-winning food and travel journalist and former assistant food editor and test kitchen director for the Chicago Tribune. I know Donna personally because she was the very best food editor I have ever worked with at the Columbia Daily Tribune. She was also an adjunct instructor for the University of Missouri's world-renowned journalism school. Donna, welcome. Oh, Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here talking to you. Well, I know you're based in Chicago, and you continue to work on exciting projects, and I wanted to talk about two of those today with our listeners because they will be as excited about them as we are. (laughs) The one is called Black America Cooks, and the other is Skillet Diaries. So let's first start with Black America Cooks. Tell me what it's about. Tell me what drove you to do this. Well, about two years ago, when I decided to leave the trip and to do my own project, my own work, Black America Cooks was, I have a storage. I live in a condo right downtown, and I pay every month, I pay $200 a month for storage of all of this research I have on Black America cooking. I've been a cookbook collector, and I've just always throughout done a lot of research about forgotten black cooks and old restaurants and all of those things. And I decided that now was the time for me to devote time to really getting all that down. I thought to myself, if I don't do this, then somebody else is going to have to start over on the project that I have and the way that I'm doing it. And these are real recipe-driven and interview kind of driven. So I decided I was going to also, I I understood as journalism and newspapers being what they were, the future to me appeared to be the digital world, and I decided I was going to get a Mac, and I was going to learn the digital, I was going to learn social media, I was going to learn about websites, I was going to do all of those things, and then with that, put blackamericacooks.com together, and it's just been the most exciting, wonderful adventure doing that. Well, the Black America Cooks website, you know, I I visited it thinking I was going to just visit it briefly, and of course, hours later, (laughs) I thought maybe I should move on to some other project. But it is absolutely captivating, and you talk about the magic of food and storytelling. And I love you have a quote here, and this is um, something that your grandmother used to say. You say, look inside old family recipe collections and be prepared to find more than recipes for meals. What do you think your grandmother meant by that? Well, you know, especially when I was in Columbia, I attended tons of garage sales and auctions and estate sales and always looking for cookbooks and ephemera and all of the things that had to do with cooking and found the most wonderful, wonderful old books. And there's a picture on the, the website of me standing in front of one of my bookcases in my living room. It's just jammed. I, I live, I'm instead of the person who's going to be with all of the, the dog cats or whatever, the old lady with all the cats, I'm going to be the old lady with all the books collapsing in on her because I just cannot resist wonderful old books. Right. But what's interesting is every time 
you open up a book that's been well used, not one that's been saved as an investment, but a well used old book. Mm-hmm. There's always something else is going to drop out of it. It's going to be a photograph of a baby. It's going to be an invitation from 30 years ago, 50 years ago. It's going to be a church bulletin. It's going to be a reminder. I've had love letters. I've had flowers. And it just is that reminder. And I think that's what my grandmother meant, that when a lot of times when women did not have a voice, that voice was maybe loudest in the kitchen and with preparing meals for the family. And so a lot of the other memories went in there because of all the time that was spent there. Well, Black America Cooks features healthy soul food recipes. And I I have to say as a dietitian, I've got to back up and say anybody who hears the word healthy, in this case, we also have to interject the word delicious. Right. So healthy and delicious soul food recipes. Southern recipes, African-American recipes, it's a great collection of the kinds of foods that we want to preserve and pass on culturally. And then with Skillet Diaries, you've got the storytelling. How many Skillet Diaries have you collected so far? I was just going through and pulling some books when I was uh, preparing this to speak with you, and I really have no count. And, in fact, I really would not give a count the same way I wouldn't give my age because I just don't want to be out there. It would be embarrassing. Right. How many? Oh, my God. There, I have, I always, I love, my favorite books are the community cookbooks and the special personal cookbooks. There are a couple things you said earlier. One was about the healthy black recipes, healthy soul food. And a lot of people will find that, I just did a story, and I'm about going to be interviewing, uh, Jessica Harris has a wonderful book, that's just coming out called High on the Hog, and there's several other writers that are doing wonderful things. It seems as if a lot of people are coming together now saying, this is a very unrecognized topic that needs to be documented. And she has some fabulous documentation of of some of the historic black uh, cooks and cookbooks and all of that. And I, I have a lot of those books. And one of the things that Jessica and I have always had a discussion about the term soul food because what first comes to mind with people is that's an unhealthy type of eating and that given the high incidence of so many health issues related to the black community, that that's something to stay away from. And Jessica's point, well taken, has always been that there's much more to what black people have contributed to it than soul food. My point has been that it's a brand, in a sense, quote, brand, I'm making air quotes as I talk. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and that, that when you go online and you, you look up certain things, the only way to really get to something that you're going to find has been, that stems from a, a black source is going to be to have soul somewhere in that search. So it's one that I don't want to do away with, and yet to be mindful of the fact that there's so much more than just the certain few dishes, I'd say maybe a dozen dishes that we would directly trace to food that slaves ate to survive, enslaved Africans ate to survive. And the other side of that, there was a wonderful article just recently that was saying that really to bring up the mind that when we look at all the illnesses that come from a community of eating and and African-American communities that maybe have a higher incidence of so many different illnesses, that fast food is more the culprit and preservatives than is a, a diet that's a, quote, soul food diet. I almost eat every day my very favorite recipe. I make this every, I make it once a week, sometimes twice a week. I use it in every single ingredient. I've tried to find a name for it. I've played a while 
for calling it ego, alter ego, and whatever. It's eggplant and greens and okra. And the way I prepare it is I just roast it. I put it in a 450-degree oven. It's sliced okra, cubed eggplant with the peel on it, and then onions, tomatoes, and I just spray oil on the bottom of a baking sheet. And then I always put mushrooms and put all of these things together, and then tomatoes. And a lot of times I will use canned chopped tomatoes or canned diced tomatoes and roast it for about 25 minutes, and it just roasts so deliciously. And even people that don't like okra like this, the okra in here, because there's nothing slimy about it, and it's really delicious. And it's totally soul food. It's totally food, some of the ingredients that came, okra comes directly from, during the slave trade, from Africa. And it's totally dishes, but there's nothing about it that's not healthy, not extremely healthy. And I use it in omelets. I use it as a vegetable. I make an egg white omelet where I use that as the filling. I add it to my salads and toss that vegetable with salads. I roll it in whole wheat tortillas. I I use it in everything, and it's really delicious, and it really is soul food. I agree with you. I think roasted vegetables are absolutely dreamy. And when we talk about the busy cooks, you know, somehow somehow we have been convinced that we don't have time to cook. And I think it's by the makers of all the packaged foods that are trying to sell us this notion that we don't have time. But really, you've just proven that we can make this marvelous roasted vegetable mixture with multiple uses and so very healthy. And the other thing you said about, you know, the health disparities that we see in minority populations, specifically among African Americans, these kinds of health disparities, yes, they are linked to inappropriate food choices, lack of food choices, and also lack of control over one's life. That also feeds into the health disparities that we see. And so I like the way you are reclaiming soul food as absolutely being healthful. And the the other thing that I love from your website, you talk about your grandmother introducing you to the true meaning of soul food, which includes my responsibility to share the stories the recipes, and the black American traditions that have become my skillet diaries. Exactly. Let's talk about some of the stories that you've unfolded in, in your interviews. Now, I know you've had interactions with some of the most famous individuals on the planet with regard to food. There's a picture of you and Julia Child, for example, along the top of your website. You've got a Soul to Keep Salute featuring Maya Angelou. And I love your review of her because you talk about having lunch with her back in the 70s and how she really was one of two women that convinced you to follow your dreams. And it was over lunch. (laughs) Right. <laughs> Some of the best decisions are made over lunch. Right, right. I had taken classes at Indiana University. I had just on a lark, I took a black theater class from a poet, Mari Evans, who was just fantastic, and it was so amazing. I was so mesmerized that I took every single class, not only that she offered, I took every class that was offered in the fledgling black studies department then. And even though I... I wanted to become a journalist, I knew I had to learn this from myself. And, and as part of that, one of her friends was Maya Angelou who came through and we had, she had a lunch she arranged for some of her students. And I remember the thing I remember most about Mari was that she would, for lunch every day, she, and this was before I decided to be a food writer, but this is my biggest memory of her. Two things I remember. One was about word choice. She always said to pay attention 
to the way people describe things, that the choice that a person makes of a word to use when they have quite a few to use says, speaks volumes about them. And that has helped me more than anything else in interviewing and writing and everything. It's, I mean, that was a great gift that she gave me. And the, But the main thing that I learned from her was that she ate a baked rutabaga for lunch every day. Oh, another and, one of my favorite root crops. Oh, was she? And she would always talk about it and always talk about just how much that sustained her. And how, So that was something that every time I cannot pass one and not think about her, and she's a fabulous poet. I spoke with her, in fact, a, about a month ago. She's in Indianapolis now. She's re, she's still writing, and she's still doing a lot of work. She just did a play and whatever. But I had a chance to speak with her, and she's still enjoying it. She was surprised I remembered that, and she's still enjoying her rutabaga. <laughs> a daily rutabaga. That's wonderful. <laughs> but, you know, and, and Julia Child at the Greenbrier, I had a chance. I went to the conference. There's a food writers conference every year. And when I decided that I wanted to become a food writer. It was right around 1996, and I remember that somebody told me that it would take a decade or more, and I didn't believe them, and yes, they were right, to really be able to hone your skills and all those kind of things. But I happened, I had a friend who was there who, when the tables were all set for lunch, there were a 100 writers who came. They asked everybody what was the inspiration, because a lot of people were leaving every department in newspapers to go to food. It used to be that home, uh, home economists were the food writers in newspapers. That's right. And these were journalists who all of a sudden were writing. And we had in common what all of us down to, except for one young woman who was getting into this, knowing that she wanted to write about food. The rest of us had been journalists about other things who had spent more than six months in Europe on a trip. And that had made us all realize the value of food that maybe we as Americans were not understanding and how we could really appreciate it and write about it and, and help inform others about it. And that was uh, where I first, Julia Child was there every year until she passed away. And she would have a, um, she had the presidential suite at the Greenbrier every evening after all the conferences and dinners and whatever, and she'd just sit and talk. But I happened, they arranged the, the table for 12. I was one of the people sitting there having lunch with her. And when I was in Columbia and I was doing things for the Paul Pepper Show and doing things, and she said, that's exactly what you're supposed to do, and keep doing it until you do the next thing, and keep doing it until you do the next one. And so I always think of her with the encouragement. In fact, I wrote a column about it. I had pinned that column to my computer at work when I get discouraged and know that I was on the right track. You've traveled extensively, Africa, Europe, the Caribbean, certainly throughout the United States. You've lived in San Francisco. Tell me something. What do you find that is most universal about food? Oh, you know, that's a really wonderful question because that's what I found, that people who love preparing food, people who love family traditions, no matter where they live, no matter where they come from, are people that there's something we have in common, Mm -hmm. those of us who do that. And I think there are people, you know, I have a sister who, who does cook Thanksgiving every year and she's a wonderful attorney and does what, but doesn't have that same feeling about food that I do. And it's, you know, that's when I started to recognize that everybody does, and that's fine. We all have different interests and different things that, that, that we're totally attracted to. And I think that there are those people in every culture. I was on a train years ago. This is two decades ago, two and a half decades ago, between, uh, on, on this long trip 
where a friend of mine and I had URL passes, and we were just going to see the world, and we were going to see Europe, and it was Europe and Greece and Scandinavia. And so we were on this train, and I was arguing, I guess, loudly, or I was saying loudly that I did, I did not want to go to Germany. I wanted to spend all of my time in Italy because Italy was so fantastic and the Italian food, and I wanted to go to every village, blah, blah, blah. And the young woman behind me tapped me on the shoulder and said, you must come to, to Germany, and when you come to Berlin, come and, and see us. And it was Monica Eisenhuth who lived, was a Berliner, and the wall was still up. Mm-hmm. And after we had finished, on our trip, finished Copenhagen, we took the train that goes under the Baltic and whatever to Berlin. We're arranging just to say hello to Monica. She had planned for us to stay with her at her house, her wonderful apartment. And we had to wait at the zoo, the Berlin Zoo, until she was finished with work. And then that weekend, she invited all of her friends to meet the Americans. Oh and it wasn't, it was interesting, too. That was a time when I, it wasn't the black Americans, and it wasn't, it was just, come meet the Americans. And everybody came. And it was a time when, you know, when right across, we had this horrible wall and all of these things. Everybody came with stories about their families. And we were all in our early 30s, late 20s, and we had dreams about the families we were going to have and the lives we were going to lead. And somebody stood up to make a toast, and they said, this is a toast to all of us that if we ran the world, there wouldn't be walls and there wouldn't be hatred and there wouldn't be wars. And this is a toast to the people who come together like this as friends over a meal. Oh, that's And so that, beautiful. to me, is one of the stories that when I'm wondering about the importance of what I do when I think about that, that's so meaningful to me. I found that having a discussion of matters of importance around a table where there is really good food truly makes a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I haven't really given thought except for the fact is just historically breaking bread and sitting and something, you know, to enjoying, feeding the senses and appreciating the person who prepared the meal and, and the food that comes from the earth and the fact that we're all joined. But that, that I know that for me... Some of my most profound times have come from from lingering around a table. I, I I just thought of I wrote a I wrote a column a while ago, a long time ago, when my my father's oldest brother passed away, and it he passed away during the time we were having Thanksgiving dinner, and he had been very ill, and um, we started the dinner with my dad had gotten a phone call saying that he he was really not doing well and that we should all say a prayer for him before our meal and. It was my mother always had a million people over for Thanksgiving, and all the family came from everywhere in in, in Colombia. We now have Thanksgiving in Chicago after she passed away. We couldn't bear to have it in in Colombia any longer, so we everybody comes to Chicago. But we were all in Colombia, and she had all the tables and all the grandkids and everyone else. And during the course of the whole Thanksgiving, we you know, by eating, and we were talking, and the memories, the rolls, my grandmother's rolls, and we talked about how much he had liked the rolls, and we talked, you know, the food itself, and the recipes themselves, his favorite foods, and what, but it softens things, and it brings, I think, what we, the fact that we are all, no matter, no matter what, in families, in communities, you know, in ethnic groups, whatever, we, we are all more alike than we are different, mm-hmm. and it comes down, it reminds us of that common denominator. 
Oh, Donna, that's such a beautiful observation. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Donna Pierce. Donna is a food historian. She's a national award-winning food and travel journalist and former assistant food editor and test kitchen director for the Chicago Tribune. She grew up with deep roots in Mobile, Alabama, where her family lived for five generations before her parents moved to Missouri, which is where I had the pleasure of meeting her. She was the very best food editor I've, I've ever worked for at the Columbia Daily Tribune, and she she also held a position as adjunct instructor for the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Donna, I want to ask, I think that because of all the different places you've traveled and all these marvelous cooks, famous cooks that you've interviewed and sat side by side with around a table of food, I'm sure you've come up with some nuggets, you know, some, some morsels. What do you want people to know about food? Well, it's funny when you start when you say that, and I'm listening to you describing it. And I have traveled a lot of places and met a lot of things. The the people that I enjoy the most, and the people, and what that all of that has taught me, and maybe that's the reason it happened in my life, are the people that that, that I meet that consider themselves to be everyday family cooks are the ones. There's every single person has a story. And some of those stories are the most profound and the most wonderful. I was just having a conversation with someone about traveling, because I loved traveling, and I traveled a lot of places. I was saying recently, I'm planning a trip this spring. I'm planning to do something on the west coast of Africa. However, I have not for a long time done a, a really serious trip. And I said, you know, I'm just as excited about traveling to Omaha to interview somebody who has grown up there for several generations and has some special little meat pie recipe, as I used to be about going to Florence or going somewhere else. I real for me that it's that person who has persevered with that, those family traditions that is so exciting and so wonderful to me to be able to get down. Um, one of the people on a bus stop, I just met the most interesting woman. About a month ago, I was coming back from visiting a relative, and I take public transportation here, which I love because I meet wonderful people. I agree. And I was coming back on the bus on the south side from visiting a relative at, for a birthday lunch, and I was going to the African Festival. It was this summer, and there's an African Festival in the park, and I was uh, coming there, and wait, the bus, it was raining, it was drizzling, and the bus was late, and one of them passed us by, and there was a very, very elderly lady that was standing there and she was a beautiful lady and she was and she got tired and she sat down and then we I just talked to her I asked her if she wanted me to get her some water or something we were talking about something and we were waiting and we were talking about how much we loved riding the bus and as it turned out she was 89 and uh, I was telling her what I did and how much I loved food and recipes she had gone to the store to buy yeast Mm. that's how we started talking and she was talking about her role recipe and I was talking about my grandmother's roll recipe. And she gave me a little bit of an inside information for hers. She uses potato water in her recipe, which I had never done before. And I've since tried that, and it's really wonderful. Yes. It activates the yeast a little more. But she told me that she had raised money for Christmases in the 40s by selling breads and cakes and cookies all over the South Side to restaurants and to families and to all of that. And then she said, and we talked more, and she said, and she didn't, she said, you know, I only have a son. And I said, well, I only have a son. She goes, well, I have no use. She sent me her recipe the next week. 
Oh, my. What a and treasure. I know, but those are the kinds, and, and I understood that because I'm looking for someone who I'm going to be probably, you know, hopefully it will be a wonderful daughter-in-law, but I'm looking for someone that I'm going to be sending, you know, or a family member. But if not, it would be a person I met on the bus stop who showed me the passion they had about food. I would want for it to continue for another generation. I agree. How do we develop the passion for food in others? I, I think that, for one thing, right now, we're, you know, how, how we're in such a strange time for a lot of things. I had the interesting opportunity to meet the man, to interview the man who was the first black graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. And he graduated right after the war. He went into, and it was, it was it had another name, and then it was, the name was changed to Culinary Institute, CIA in, in New York. And so, but what he said was that he was, so frustrated by the Food Network and a lot of this, or a lot of food television shows, because when he went to the culinary school, a lot of the chefs who were keeping that information, and not to say that that school particularly, but just in the whole, the private club of being a chef or the private whatever, were keep were making sure that things were that everything had to pass through and become official before it was okay. And I hear a lot of people talk about things that they hear on food television shows, discounting family traditions that their parents taught them, thinking that the food television show is the expert. Mm -hmm. And because somebody is on television, they're the expert on how you do, how you make a certain dish. And even from personal experience, especially people who've left, who are maybe a generation removed from somebody who's a, a traditional cook. You know, I grew up in Missouri, my family from Mobile for five generations. And when I would hear about andouille sausage, I would always hear that it was a Creole sausage. So I assumed that was the sausage that my grandmother used. And it wasn't until I ate chorizo in Spain and chorico that in Portugal that I realized that andouille was not the sausage we ate in our recipes, that it was more of the Spanish sausage that I since learned, you know, was produced in Mobile and in New Orleans, and it was much more flavorful and delicious. And then I learned that andouille was really more of a Cajun sausage. And yet what happens is when people learn everything about from television or from a chef that has, you know, and I cooked on television here, and you have a stylist and food is prepared in advance, and then you and it's all orchestrated as opposed to the family way of learning to cook. Mm -hmm. So I think that one of the ways to get people as excited about it is to say, number one, it doesn't have to turn out, it does, it's usually not going to turn out great the first time. You learn the most from your mistakes. And that cooking is a lot easier than you think it is. It's not all of the, the drama that a television show, right, having to be a television show makes it. Cooking is a wonderful, wonderful way of spending time in your kitchen with wonderful food, doing things for your family. And people are, who want to prepare for themselves are usually shocked by how easy it is to roast a chicken Donna, or prepare a Thanksgiving dinner. Uh -huh. You have left us with some marvelous advice, and I want to thank you. And our time together is over. Oh, no. I, I was going to tell you how fantastic I think you are. Oh, always. no, no, no. We don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to remind our listeners that we've been speaking with Donna Pierce. She is a food historian and a marvelous writer on food and all things about food, the most important, I think, of which is love. And, Donna, you have 
I think every column you've ever written has probably brought me to tears because it reaches the very the very heart and soul of what food is about. Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank you, Donna. And I will make sure that our listeners know where and how to find you. We will have a link on our website for skilletdiaries.com. That's for everybody, not just... Black America Cooks. It's for every ethnic group. Wonderful. And as well, and Black America Cooks as well. Right. Wonderful quotes, wonderful interviews. Thank you, Donna, so much. Thank you so much.